I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do, besides eating dessert. Chocolate dessert, preferably. (laughs) And we may be a little biased, but we think reading people are the coolest people. So today, our episode feels a little bit like show and tell or career day at school. We are finding out all about what a literary agent does. Our guest this week is Alice Spielberg, the founder of and one of the literary agents at Spielberg Literary Agency in Louisville, Kentucky. She learned her trade working with both publishers and a literary agency in New York City, and then Hurricane Sandy happened, and her home in New Jersey was destroyed, and so she decided that it was time to come home to Kentucky. She founded her agency in 2013, and she represents authors like Angela Jackson Brown and James Markert. Alice gives us a 101 crash course and how it all works and what a writer should know before sending their work to an agent. And she gives us a little sneak peek into what book trends we may see in the next few years. But first, we did something yesterday. (laughs) That sounds exciting. We did something yesterday. We went to the Speed Art Museum book club that you got me into. Yeah, back in our very first season, we interviewed Shannon Carroll, who's the Director of Education at the Speed Art Museum in Louisville, Kentucky, and also Cheryl Sweeney, who is a member of that book club group. And I was so enamored of the group. Shannon invited me to come observe a meeting before we ever interviewed them so I could see what they were doing and what they were about after interviewing them and that I have been going ever since. And also, you you just can't say no. Yeah, sometimes I have a hard time saying no. And then I sort of drug you into it. Maybe, what, eight or nine months ago? Yeah, I think I've been there for several books. I have to say, I really enjoy it. So she looks at what is in the Speed's collection and also the exhibits that are going to be coming to the Speed in the year. And she tries to find books that connect in some way to either something that's already in the Speed's collection or something that is going to be coming to the Speed for a short period of time. This one was exciting because it was in person again. It had been going on by Zoom for many, 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 many months. And while I still enjoyed doing it that way, it was much better to do it in person because then we could actually go see the artwork instead of being shown pictures of it on Zoom. Yes. Although I have to say, Shannon's PowerPoints are really excellent and I really enjoy those too. I mean, yes, it's definitely better to see the art in person, but but the PowerPoints are pretty fantastic. It's really cool because Shannon, because art is kind of her jam, you know, she's able to point out things in the artworks that somebody like me who doesn't have a background in art is not going to notice. And even if I noticed something, I wouldn't know the backstory to why it's there. I mean, this month was a perfect example because the exhibit uh, that the book we read related to was an exhibit of paper dresses. And I know that that sounds strange, but there is an artist, Isabel de Borchgrove, and she makes dresses based on famous paintings, the dresses and famous paintings. And... You and I had gone and seen that exhibit on our own, but then we went back with Shannon to see some of the dresses that were in portraits of people who were in the book that we read for this month, and it added so much more. 
Didn't you think? Oh, yeah, for sure. I decided when I went on Saturday, I got a speed membership. And so I'm going to take my mom, not because she is an art, you know, I mean, you know, art's okay, right? But she is a sewer. And so when you and I went in June and saw these beautiful gowns made of paper, I thought my mom has to see this because you would look at them from afar. You would think that they are made out of fabric. They're gorgeous. They're absolutely stunning. And so I'm going to take my mom and now I can share with my mom when she and I go some of the things that Shannon shared with us. So the book that we read is a historical fiction and it's an author that I had never heard of. Her name's Sally Christie, but the name of the book is The Enemies of Versailles. And it's actually the third in a series and it's about basically King Louis the 15th of France. And each book follows one of his mistresses. So the very last book is about the mistress that he had with him until his death. But it also includes a lot about his daughters who were unmarried. But I loved the writing style of this particular author. She researches these things impeccably. And all the little details that she added that I think are, are true, if you look up her website, and she infuses a lot of humor into the book. And I just, I really enjoyed it. And it was kind of a long book. I mean, it was like 400 some pages, but I went through it really fast. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And actually I handed it off to my mom today when I went out to her house so that she can read it before we go to the school. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Does your mom like historical fiction? She does. Yeah. I mean, mysteries are more her jam. Like mysteries are what she primarily reads, but she is not opposed to historical fiction. So there were some details in here uh, (laughs) about King Louis the 15th and his last mistress who had been a prostitute that were a little risque, risque, especially maybe for your mother. Are you concerned about that at all? No, no, I'm not. (laughs) I, I will say when we had the book discussion on Saturday, you know, there was a lot of giggling at this particular book discussion that we had really not had before. So it was kind of funny. I imagine she'll say something about them, but no, I, you know, she's pretty chill. So I think she'll just kind of be like, well, that was interesting, you know, (laughs) but now we're going to listen to Alice and she's going to tell us all about the hidden part of the publishing world that I didn't know anything about. I think she probably got a little bit overwhelmed because when we were chatting with her, I kept coming up with all these questions. Yeah, if you've ever wondered about how you would go about getting a literary agent or what they're looking for, this is a great episode to listen to. So I think we should get to it. Let's do it. Alice Spielberg, thank you so much for talking with us this morning. It's so great to be here. So your literary agency is located in Louisville, Kentucky. Are you originally from Louisville or where did you grow up? I like to say that I'm originally from Kentucky, but I've grown up in lots of different places. So I was born out in Muhlenberg County. I really grew up mostly in Lexington, and then I moved to Louisville for my last two years of high school. So what was your reading life like as a child? I, I mean, My assumption is that if you grew up to be a literary agent, then you were probably a big reader. But we've learned that just because somebody is a big reader when they're an adult doesn't necessarily mean they were that way as a kid. Oh, gosh, I was a I was a huge reader. I was definitely a bookworm. So I 
really gravitated towards historical novels pretty early on. There's this picture of me in like sixth grade at a 4th of July celebration and it's like a potluck and I'm sitting on a wagon with a giant tome on my knees and I remember it was Gone with the Wind. Um, Oh wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I read like the Little House on the Prairie books, all the little American Girl book series and then really got into from historical novels into fantasy. And so I read Tamora Pierce's Alana the Night series and Philip Pullman's series of that starts with the Golden Compass. So really historical and fantasy were my favorites as, as a kid growing up. So when you were in college, what was your major? I'm just always curious how people get into the business of being a literary agent. Well, working on books for a living seemed like kind of a fantasy dream. That was something that wasn't real, right? So I majored in animal science. I was pre-vet and I'd worked at a veterinary clinic all through high school and part-time. And I loved my animal science classes, but I switched after a year and it was, it was the chemistry. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I just didn't enjoy it at all. And I knew I was going to have to take countless more chemistry classes if I was going to become a vet. And that was not interesting (laughs) to me. Yeah. So then you switched then from animal science to literature? or To to journalism. But at that point, I knew I was going to take that degree and pivot towards the publishing world, that I was going to work in book publishing. But journalism, it seemed like, you know, I could still take lit classes on the side, and I did, but I really honed my editorial skills on the journalism side. I went to University of Kentucky, and I was the assistant news editor on the Kentucky Colonel news desk. I started out in journalism in college and then decided that I wasn't outgoing enough. I was too shy to actually interview people at that time, you know, like for news stories and things. So then I switched to English from (laughs) journalism. But I think that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about, but it's true. Doing journalism and if you're on a publication, the editing that you have to do Mm -hmm. for that. Yeah, that's interesting. Learning to write so succinctly, you know, in English, you're almost overwriting all the time with those like analytical essays. But in journalism, you have to get your point across really quickly. So it's a totally different approach. When you graduated from UK and then started working in publishing, did you leave the state? I did leave the state. So I applied to a bunch of places. I was really trying to avoid going up to New York City if I could. But at the time, and this is like 2008, everything was still very much in New York City with only a few exceptions. So I moved up there the summer after I graduated. I got a job at John Wiley & Sons as an editorial assistant. I started in their medical journals division, so something very far from <laughs> from the books that I'm working on now. It was a way to get my foot in the door. It was a way to get me to New York City, and I jumped at it. It was also you know, a full-time job with a salary straight out of college, so that was good too. <laughs> yeah. But, but Wiley, we were right on the river on the Jersey side, so in Hoboken, and there were eight floors, and so I worked on the eighth floor. And down on the fourth floor was where the trade publishing happened. And they did only nonfiction, but these are like biographies and narrative books and all kinds of fun stuff. So 
I worked in medical journals for about a year and then applied for a transfer down to the trade division and I got it. What was it that led you back to Kentucky, but also led you to start your own company, Mm -hmm. your own literary agency? I think first, you know, I had to make that jump to agenting. And that was something that I realized pretty early on once I started working on trade books that I was working with authors where I thought they had a good idea, that it was book worthy, that we should publish it. And I would bring it to our editorial meetings and everyone would be really excited. And then we would pitch it to the salespeople and they would say, eh, no, not this one. And I'd been working at this point with the author for, you know, over a month and we worked on the proposal together and I had built that relationship with them and then it just dissolved and I had to send them on their way. And that was really hard. So I started talking to literary agents because I knew that they stayed with the author for their career, basically. And talking to literary agents around town, I ended up working for Howard Moorheim Literary in Brooklyn. And every literary agent kind of works independently. You know, each of us works on commission for our own projects. We're attached to an agency, but our list is our own. So from the start, as soon as I started agenting, it became clear to me that eventually it would be nice to open my own agency. So I started paying attention to how Howard ran his office and what I would eventually need to do, what kinds of things I would need for a business like liability insurance and that sort of thing, and taking notes along the way so that I would be prepared to eventually make that shift. So tell us about your company, Spielberg Literary Agency, and when did it begin and how did it begin? Yeah, so we launched in 2013. It was soon after Hurricane Sandy, and that really was that pivotal moment for me. My place in Hoboken flooded, Mm. and we couldn't live there anymore. Then that just seemed like a good a good reason to leave New York, go back to where I'm from. So my husband is from Michigan. We actually ended up going to Michigan for a little while. And I put up a website for the agency thinking, like, I have no idea if this is going to work or not. Will people submit to me if I'm not at one of the New York agencies? And it turns out they did. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I started building a client list and I, it was very remote, far from New York. At that time, I was still going back to New York pretty frequently, like twice a year. That shifted to once a year. And then, of course, in 2020, I didn't go at all. <laughs> but I think over that time period, it's become a lot more accepted for agents to be working outside of New York in general. Even when they're working for New York agencies, they're working from their homes in North Carolina or Texas. So after I launched my agency, within a few years, I was not one of the only people outside of New York. I was one of many, which was really helpful. So as a literary agent, I don't fully understand like how it works. Somebody sends a manuscript to you and say you accept it. Mm-hmm. Then what happens next? And I should say my understanding of people's jobs is like fireman, teacher, doctor, like (laughs) any other jobs. I'm like, I don't understand. What do you do? So yeah, a literary agent is a really weird job to describe. Like, I don't think my parents still understand completely what I do. (laughs) 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 So 
it's a fair question. But I get the manuscript. And then for a little while, I'm like a book doctor in some ways. I'm preparing the manuscript to go on submission. And then I submit it to editors that I have made relationships with who have told me, you know, oh, this year, I'm, I'm really hoping to add a little bit more horror to my list. You know, we have a lot of thrillers that's kind of done. So don't send me any more of those. But if you have a horror novel, send it to me so that when I get a manuscript in, I know who is looking for it or even more. I know who's not looking for that. So I don't send it to the wrong person. And so I submit it to my contacts and then they, you know, hopefully make an offer and I negotiate the contract on behalf of the author and then we move forward from there. I envision you almost in some ways being like a book attorney. That's okay. part of it. The, okay. like the negotiation piece. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're also like editorial too, because like you said, doing the work on the front end to get it ready to promote among publishing companies. Yes. And I think the very last role, if you're looking at it in that way is kind of a therapist. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot that goes wrong in the path to publication and after, and I have to be there as a guide and a hand holder and a cheerleader to make it through all of those missteps along the way. Well, I had read an article where people rightly or wrongly, think about literary agents like a real estate agent. Like you do a deal, you take the commission and you kind of move along. But in the same article, they were saying the role is actually more like a birth coach or a a doula, Mm -hmm. where you sort of help birth this book into being and you're there for every step of the way. And so how would you describe your relationship with your clients? I really like the doula analogy. I hadn't heard that one before. So I'm very familiar with the real estate agent analogy and, you know, we're both agents. So in some ways, it's an easy way to kind of start the conversation about what a literary agent does, because most people are familiar with how real estate agents work. But there is, I think, a little more prep on the before the deal too. Like I might work with a client for over a year and we'll have drafts go back and forth. We might go through five drafts. I'll send them 10 page editorial letters. You know, it is a long process and I'm very much in the weeds with the writer. And I just sold my house actually last week. I worked with a real estate agent. He was wonderful. He was so helpful. I don't know how we would have made it through that negotiation process without him. But when he first came and looked at our house, he was like, yeah, you know, you're going to have to clean this up. You're going to have to fix that. So good luck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not like he went to Home Depot with us to buy the planks to fix the fence. And like, (laughs) so I think an agent is more involved in that preparation stage. And then the negotiation stage is probably pretty similar to what a real estate agent does. But then we stay there and we work with the author as you get notes back from the editor and maybe the editor just doesn't get the book at all. Or maybe their notes just weren't very much and we need more. We need more guidance. Maybe the cover comes back and it's terrible. And what do we do? How do we negotiate that? So there are all these steps along the way to publication. And then the book comes out and the author is like, well, what do I do now? And we start talking about, well, let's think about what you want your next book to be. Let's think about like what the key audience that we might be missing for the book that just launched might be and how we can reach that audience to supplement what the publisher is doing. So 
we keep going. And I think it's that latter part of publishing that, that first time authors don't think about that much. They're like, I need an agent to get a deal. But then Mm. there is this whole other piece of it that is the bulk of my work, the ongoing career management. And that informs the deal too. Like if all I had to do was make a deal for you and then see ya, then I think I care more about what types of publishers we end up working with because I know I have to continue working with them. I have helped people do editorial work with books that it's the very early stages for them. I've done it enough that I feel like I can help people get to a point where they have something that they're ready then to submit to a literary agent. And I have multiple jobs, you know, like this isn't a full-time thing I do. It's, it's basically just mostly people I know, acquaintances. But I feel like one of the things I have to tell them is I can read your story. I can give you feedback on the grammar, the spelling, the storyline, the, the content, you know, so that we can get it in good shape so that an agent might accept it. But in terms of like, I'm not a publishing person. So do you find that if if there's a writer who approaches you or sends you in a manuscript, is that something that's beneficial to them to have had somebody go over it? Because a lot of times they'll contact me and they're like, I don't have $4,000 up front to pay an editor. Can you talk about that? So I think that there are so many ways to start on that path towards publishing, towards getting a literary agent. And it is definitely helpful to have people look at the manuscript and to have people edit the manuscript beforehand. I would say a lot of my clients, but also a lot of people I end up signing have few trusted beta readers who always read their books who give them feedback. And some of that feedback might be grammatical, but a lot of it is this part of the manuscript kind of bored me. Something might be happening there. Take a closer look. Or I didn't love this character, but otherwise the book was great. So just having those initial reactions from your trusted readers can be really helpful in toning the manuscript and polishing it before you send it in. Some writers do pay a freelance editor to edit their work. And I don't think that's always necessary, but it can be incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. If you have an editor who is familiar with the market and the genre for that particular book, you know, if you're writing romance, you don't want someone who reads only sci-fi fantasy and mysteries to edit a romance book because romance books are very specific with their tropes and expectations for happily ever afters and all that kind of stuff. So you want someone who knows how that genre is supposed to read to be the one editing it. But I think you can also join a local writers group or join a society that has regular meetups. There are summer writing classes. A couple of my clients have gone to the Iowa writing workshops in the summer and have met really great writer friends there that they continue to keep in touch with. So I think going to one of those classes and just making those community connections is going to be helpful for years afterward. I feel like this is like the 101 class for at least for me personally, like everything I always wanted to know about how this works, but (laughs) never had a person available. But it's just so fascinating to me because I've, I've never really understood how the whole process works. Mm -hmm. Your company is a smaller one. You have three agents 
in your office and you're also an all female staff. Mm-hmm. So is is this unusual in the industry and are there benefits that you see from being small and also being all female? So publishing is definitely a very women-friendly, women-heavy industry. And I guess the caveat there is that it's a lot of white women. And even traditionally, it's a lot of wealthy Northeastern white women because so much of it was in New York. If you're already in the Northeast or you're already going to university there, then it's easier to get a summer internship somewhere and then kind of move up from there. So it's definitely great to work with other women. And we are a very small company. It's just the three of us. I have interns occasionally. I have an intern this summer. And I'm hoping to grow the agency over the next year or so. And I think the great thing about working with other women is that we're very flexible about each other's schedules. You know, agenting can sometimes be a 24-7 sort of job where you're reading at night and you're answering emails during the day. But if you have to take your kid to the doctor's office or if something else comes up around the house, you can take care of that too. So it's one of the things I love about it, that it's so flexible. And I think working with women, I have found has always been more flexible in general. Even when I was in a corporate setting, when I had female bosses, they were always more flexible than male bosses. And maybe that was just my personal experience, but I find the work-life stuff works easier when we're a group of women. So is there a benefit to people who are aspiring writers to maybe not seek out the most well-known literary agents, but maybe look at more regional in people's heads. They want to be the next JK Rowling. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that for most writers, they start small. They don't necessarily start with, I'm putting this in air quotes, the big wigs. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, publishing is interesting in that the big wigs are always interested in in bringing on the next new big thing. And it very often is a debut writer, but it's usually a debut author who has, you know, a stellar resume, who has tons of followers on social media or graduated from, you know, one of the most renowned MFA programs in the country or something like that. Those are the people that they really gravitate towards. So I think agents are always taking on new clients, but the longer an agent has been around, the more successful their existing client list is, the less likely they are to take on you know, someone who is going to need a lot of handholding and a lot of you know that year of back and forth manuscript editing. You're more likely to get that kind of attention with a younger agent with an agent who doesn't have that huge book because we're still looking, we're hoping that your book is going to be that book for us. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely benefits to looking at smaller agencies, more regional agencies. I think the catch is that you don't want to get an agent who really doesn't know what they're doing because there are a lot of steps along the way and you have to be pretty well versed in all these situations and know what standards so that you don't lead the author unintentionally usually on the wrong path. So it's important to see that even if an agent is regional, that they have some experience in the industry before they started Mm -hmm. at the agency, if they're really new to the agency, or maybe that their agency has people who are really well-grounded in the industry so that you know that that agent has good mentors 
it's just worth having a real conversation with the agent and making sure that you feel a connection with them, that you feel comfortable with them and trusting your gut on whether it's the right person to trust with your work. I understand, you know, if you're an aspiring writer, you want to be published. And so it might be easy to fall into something that isn't going to take you anywhere. Yeah. You know, there's no degree for becoming a literary agent. It really is an old school apprenticeship kind of profession. So it's worth asking, you know, how did you become a literary agent? Who taught you? (laughs) There are agents out there who went and got a law degree in intellectual property, and at least then they know the legal pieces of it. And so that's worth considering, too. What is a specific author looking for in their agent? Are they looking Mm -hmm. for someone to really do the editorial stuff? Do they feel like They don't really need an agent to do that. They just want someone who can take a critical eye to the contracts or they want someone who has a publicity and marketing background who can really help them grow their platform. So every agent kind of leans in different directions and has different strengths. And so that's worth asking and thinking about as an author, what do you want most from your agent? So I'm curious about, like, are there financial considerations for aspiring writers? Like, if you're sending me a manuscript, the financial consideration is that if I make you a deal, I will take 15% of any revenue that you get from that publishing deal. But I don't take it until the publisher actually sends it. So I take it out of what the publisher sends, and I send the rest to you. So... As an agent, you know, we're not going to sign a project unless we can actually think we can sell it um, Mm -hmm. because we're not going to get paid until we sell it. So that's part of why it's so hard to get an agent. You're not just hiring an agent and paying them a sum to try to sell your manuscript. Actually, an agent is deciding to invest time in you with the hope that it will pay off in a publishing deal somewhere down the road. What does it look like? In terms of if somebody sends you a manuscript and you say, yes, I'm, I'm going to try to sell this, what time frame could somebody potentially be looking at? <laughs> it's funny that you ask this now because I have no idea. This year has been the craziest year in terms of turning the publishing timetables completely upside down. So yes, and it's COVID related, definitely. But I don't know if it's permanent or if it's going to go back to normal. So (laughs) in normal timeframes, you know, you send the book out and you're hoping for a response in the next, I don't know, eight to 12 weeks or so. And right now I still have manuscripts that I sent out in February that the bulk of the editors I've sent it to still haven't read it. And they're responding to me, we're in touch, but they haven't gotten to it yet. And everyone is the same story. I have a huge backlog right now. And so it's a combination of things. You know, I think that writers were more productive over the last year, and there are more manuscripts out there. I think that editors were suddenly thrown into a work from home situation when they'd been used to a corporate cubicle situation. So their whole work-life routines got mixed up. A lot of them were teachers last year too Yes, with their kids. (laughs) And when you think about publishing as a predominantly women working in this industry, then 
the consequences of having kids home for the entire year is, you know, a lot of that fell on women. So I think, you know, editors are very backed up. And that is not just in the submission process, but all the way through, you know, getting notes back to authors who deliver manuscripts, getting contracts back to authors, like everything is just way slower this year. So normally for this, you'd have like eight to 12 weeks with it on submission. And then you'd have a pretty good idea of whether you were going to sell it or if it was clear that a particular element needed work. And then maybe you could send it back out to a new group of editors. So usually I hope to sell the manuscript within the first six months to a year after we send it out the first time. And then after you sell it, you're waiting for about two months to get the contract or to get a final contract that's ready for signature. And after you sign the contract, usually the book, if it's fiction, will come out about a year later. On your website, it was it was fascinating because each of the agents, including you, provides a wish list of what kind of books they gravitate towards for submissions. So explain what that is a little bit and why is that important for potential clients to read? So each of us provides a wish list. This has become kind of a thing to do among agents. I think Twitter sort of started it with the hashtag MSWL that you see a book that came out or someone says something and you say, ooh, that should be a book. I want to represent that. And we found that that was really helpful for authors who are submitting. And this grows out of like a wider issue of publishing being kind of this ethereal, like you never know what's happening. These people are so unapproachable. They're so far away. They're all, you know, New Yorkers up there in their skyscrapers. And we started realizing once the internet came of age and social media came around, the agents can be a lot more accessible than they have been previously. And the manuscript wish list is part of that. Like, these are the things I like to read. Here are some fun facts about me. By the way, I'm a dog person. Like, those little tidbits might be helpful for someone who is submitting a manuscript and trying to figure out which agent would be best. You're not just looking at a name and a resume. You're looking at their actual reading preferences. So I think it's important for us to be accessible. And in terms of for writers who are submitting, you know, those manuscript wish lists, they're there to help you. But then when it comes to our actual submission guidelines, like these are the genres I represent and these are the ones I don't. If you send me something I don't represent, if you send me poetry, I'm just going to delete it. Like you're not paying attention at all. <laughs> so the submission guidelines are super important to pay attention to. The manuscript wish list is just like a, a bonus helpful tool. You know, you see lots of events at literary festivals, writing workshops, things like that, where you can meet with a literary agent. Mm-hmm. And Carrie and I have always been a little bit skeptical about those things. Like, do those really work? And so we want to know, do those really work? <laughs> the lowdown on those events. <laughs> I, I do a lot of those. Yeah, I think that they don't work in the way that authors think they will, especially authors who've never really done those before. It's not going to work like you pitch your project to me and I'm astounded and I sign you on the spot. Like that doesn't happen. But I do think really what those events are helpful for is getting that initial impression of how you might work with someone. If this is an agent that you could really connect with and see that 
you might work together or if the meeting is really awkward and gosh, you don't want to have to talk to that person every day. Or <laughs> it's much more a sense of, of working style and connection than it is the book. Because sometimes I'll get an excellent pitch and the writing when I get the pages is just not there at all. And conversely, like people who are really great writers are not always great at marketing their book. <laughs> yeah. So I don't really expect writers to be completely precarious and like amazing to talk to in the pitch. But I just want a sense of whether they're coming to this with the right sort of intentions and that we might work together well. So I'm curious now as a literary agent, are you able to read just for pure fun or does work either take away from your reading time that might be just for you or also maybe make you tired of reading so that when you don't have to read, you're kind of like, I want to go for a walk or I want to garden or I want to do something that's not with a book. Yeah. So it is really tricky. So I would say I never get tired of reading. I've always just loved stories, but I do have to pivot around different genres. And I hardly ever read something that is purely for pleasure. And that would be like rereading an old Jane Austen novel. You know, that's not going to help me for work at all. But I can read a brand new fantasy novel that just hit the shelves that sounds amazing that I would probably have wanted to read anyway, but will also help inform my work because I might end up using it as a comp title for a new fantasy book that I'm pitching. So I teach literature to middle and high school students. You know, I get very used to reading what I'm teaching Mm -hmm. in a very focused way and taking notes and annotating and, you know, that kind of reading. And so sometimes when I'm reading for enjoyment, I still find myself (laughs) kind of doing that and I have to go, whoa, you know, like you are not studying this. You can just just read it. And so it's not necessarily what I'm reading, but the way in which I'm reading that I have to pull the reins on myself and go Mm -hmm. chill out. You know, this is just for fun. So I don't think I can turn that switch off anymore. There used to be a time when I could. But now every book that I read, I'm thinking about the plot and the structure and whether the pacing is off or... (laughs) Yeah. I think the other thing that's really tricky about reading is that I feel really guilty. You know, anytime that there is a moment when I can sit down and read, I always have a long reading list of manuscripts that I should be reading or books that I know I might use as a comp that I need to read. So really like sitting down to read a book purely for pleasure when I have all these other things on my desk that I need to read just makes me feel really guilty. (laughs) What are some book trends that you are seeing right now or you think that we'll see in the future? There's a lot of really fun stuff that's trending right now. (laughs) (laughs) You guys have a book podcast, so surely you've noticed like the books lately have been so cool. But so I think horror is coming back a little bit. And I feel like I have been thinking that for a while. And now it's actually happening. Like there are horror imprints that are launching. Editors are actually telling me that they're looking for horror. So I think it's pretty safe to say that that is going to be a trend in the next couple of years. 
graphic novels are continuing to do so well and more and more publishers are kind of expanding their lists and graphic novels. So that will continue to be a big trend. And then in terms of adult fantasy too, I think there has been a little bit more paranormal, like all the witches that have been around Mm. in the last year have really brought that on. So I think we might actually see vampires come back, maybe. I don't know. Um, It's been a while, but I think that that might be happening. So those are pretty fun. In terms of nonfiction, like it used to be, you know, I work on narrative nonfiction. So like true stories about something in our culture. And I've noticed that publishers don't necessarily want just like a third person objective journalist telling of something happening. They want like a very personal story about it. So for example, On Trails is like a history of trails throughout Earth's history, not just human trails, but also like insect trails and animal trails and how like all organic beings make trails. And that could have been a story that was told from a very removed academic perspective or journalistic perspective, but it's told by a guy who actually hikes the Appalachian Trail as he's also studying trails. So you have this personal narrative woven into the scientific historical narrative. And that is something I'm seeing more and more from publishers. That is a new type of book for me that I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. I'm reading way more of those than I ever did before. So I'm one of those people driving that trend. Maybe. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really always like knew you too. were trending. <laughs> <laughs> Are there some things that you'd like to see get more attention or interest I'm pretty happy with the current things that are getting attention. Mm -hmm. I have way too much on my wish list to be read than usual. But, you know, I think we're definitely seeing a lot of diverse perspectives and a lot of books told from Indigenous perspectives, books told from Black voices and Latinx voices. So that is wonderful to see. And I am always drawn to those stories because it's, stepping into another world, getting to see the world from a totally different perspective and kind of shaking my own views on things. I've, I've just always really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. But I think I'd like to see more of those voices in nonfiction, especially like scientific nonfiction and like nature and the environment. And, you know, I, I feel like we always hear from the same white guys often. That will eventually happen, but I'd like to see it happen soon sooner rather than later (laughs) yeah this has been fantastic this has answered all the questions you wanted to to have answered and and we're too scared to ask so (laughs) well we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're all going to talk about what we're reading we are back with alice spielberg and with carrie You know, we're in the midst of summer now. It's hot. What are your summer reads look like right now? I started reading Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. I am a big fan of Neil Gaiman. And 
actually there's a, a television version with Michael Shane and David Tennant. So my husband watched that and I would sort of drop in periodically and watch it. So I have the book and I started reading it. <laughs> Good Omens is quite funny. I think Neil Gaiman's pretty funny and um, Terry Pratchett is definitely funny. This story is about a demon and an angel and the end of the world is nigh. There has been a child born who is uh, the son of Satan, right? He's the Antichrist. And it's about how this is all going to go down. The funny thing about these two characters, the angel and the demon, is that neither one of them actually wants the world to end because there's good music and some nice theater that they like to enjoy. (laughs) Um, So the whole idea of the end of the world sounds really terrible. Essentially, they both have to do their jobs. And so Crowley, who is the the David Tennant demon devil-ish character, you know, he has to be the bad guy. He can't really do good stuff, but he can do less bad stuff, I guess, in his effort to, to work with his holy counterpart. So this story is about how they are working together to keep the end of the world from happening. It's a, like a busy plot because you've got them working together, but then you also have the Antichrist character who doesn't know yet that he's the Antichrist. And then you've also got a character who is war and so every place that she goes in the world, a war erupts. And then I've just recently been introduced to the character who is famine. Wherever he goes, he's working to promote famines, even though the people he's around don't realize it. So anyway, there's a lot going on in the story, but it's pretty funny. It's fast paced and been around for a while. But I think I got it at maybe the Locust Grove used book sale at some point. Mm-hmm. So it's been on my shelf for a while. Hmm. So. Alice, what are you reading? It's funny. I feel like this is a cheat, but it's absolutely true. I am reading one of my own client's books. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Totally counts. Totally counts. So I'm rereading Heresy by Melissa Lenhart. And the funny thing is, I don't know if I actually ever read the final published version because I read so many iterations of it before that. So I'm reading the physical book now, which is really nice. And it's a feminist Western, so it's in like the 1890s, and you have this found family of women who, in one way or another, have all found their way to Garrett's ranch because they escaped father who was abusive, or one of the characters escaped slavery. So you have all these different women who have found refuge here, but then the neighboring rancher wants to marry Margaret and take over her land. And of course, we can't have that. So he succeeds. He runs her out of town. He turns the banks against her. And she and her group of women, you know, they start outlawing to make money to be able to survive. (laughs) So there's this group of women outlaws and, and no one in the West, they're in Colorado, but no one will admit that they were bested by women. So this <laughs> gang is anonymous for months and months and months. And then they decide they're going to do one last job. They're going to rob the bank of the guy who took Garrett's ranch to begin with. And it goes terribly wrong. <laughs> and so the story is, is just really 
fun because it's, you know, this Western adventure, but you also have all these like preconceived notions about what women can and can't do. And there are these suffrage marches going on at the same time and they're fighting for the right to vote. And they're trying to make this argument that women will bring morality to the way we look at politics and our government. And meanwhile, the suffragists are not too happy about this band of female outlaws. Um, who are running around robbing banks, holding people up on train stations. And (laughs) so it's a really brilliant, fun read. And I'm really glad to be jumping back into it. Well, I'm so glad you talked about that. I I had never heard of that book, but I love modern Westerns. Mm -hmm. That is a new thing that I have found in the last couple of years. I thought I hated Westerns and then I read Lonesome Dove and that turned me forever. And so I have read several recently and I'm definitely going to add that one to my list. That sounds amazing. They're working on a TV show. I don't know if it will get made, but it's the same showrunner as the guy who did The Handmaid's Tale. So it's Bruce Miller. And right now it's TNT that's working on developing it. Well, Amy, I know you've added heresy to your list now, uh, (laughs) but what have you been reading? I read a, a YA novel called The Love and Lies of Roxana Ali by Sabina Khan. And Sabina Khan describes herself as a writer who concentrates on the issues that Muslim teens face as they try to straddle two cultures. Mm. And this book was uh, published in 2019. When I got it, I thought that I had heard that it was a romance. I wouldn't totally classify it as a romance. There's some romance in there, but it deals with a lot of pretty heavy subjects. But it has a a light touch with some of those. So depending on who you are, that could be a positive or it could be a negative. So our main character, Roxana Ali, is a senior in high school, and she's a first-generation Bangladeshi American, and her family lives in Seattle. Her family's Muslim, but they seem to be fairly progressive and that she's fairly westernized. She goes to a a regular high school. She has non-Muslim female friends and is planning on going to Caltech in the fall. But her parents still hold on to some of the Bangladeshi old ways because her mother thinks really that the only reason for her to go to college is so that she can impress a future husband's family. The secret that Roxana has kept from her parents, though, is that she's gay and something that she feels like her family is likely never to accept. And she has a girlfriend named Ariana and Ariana is anxious for Roxana to come out because she doesn't like feeling like she is a dirty secret. Roxana, though, wants to wait to tell them until after she's gone off to college in the fall and she's no longer under their thumb. And she feels like Ariana and the rest of her friends don't understand how difficult and different it is in her family and how her family could be ostracized from their small, close-knit Bangladeshi community in Seattle. But eventually, Roxana's decision is sort of made for her about whether to tell her parents because her mother finds them kissing in her bedroom. And this sets off a long ordeal of mistrust between Roxana and her parents. And so her parents decide that they need to make a trip to Bangladesh to visit their ailing grandmother. But once there, the plans that her parents had have drastically changed. And Roxana must face what happens if she's forced into a traditional Bangladeshi life for a woman. Some of the things I really enjoyed about this book is that the reader is immersed into the foods and culture 
of a Bangladeshi family. The author vividly describes the street foods and the things that they would eat at home. And I loved reading about the different kinds of richly covered garments and jewelry that they would wear for different occasions while in Bangladesh or while visiting other Bangladeshi families in Seattle. And I was frantically Googling the whole time to look up some of these different terms that they would use and to see you know, what it looked like. And it was painful to see the relationship between Roxana and her parents, which was initially good, and how that can be destroyed by a parent just not accepting who their child is. Analyzing the way first-generation children of immigrants must straddle culture was also fascinating to me. And I have a connection to that because my sister is married to a man from a Pakistani-American family, and he's also first-generation. And I have witnessed some of the challenges that he has faced being the oldest male in the family and some of the traditions that are imposed isn't really a good word, but things that he must do because he is the oldest son in a family. Some of the negatives are that I did find some of the teen characters to be a little annoying at times. And Carrie, you and I have talked about that a little bit with YA. And I also felt that there were some pretty serious situations where there's some violence and they were handled with a light touch, but maybe too light. And of course, I'm 48 and I'm not necessarily the intended audience for this book. So maybe a light touch might be exactly what some teens need when they're reading this. But I would still recommend it for the right reader, someone who wants to be introduced to LGBTQ teen couples and about books that are straddling cultural worlds. Sounds very cool. Yeah. I've added that to my never ending list of. Yeah, that's (laughs) so good. All right. Well, we are going to take another quick break. And when we come back, Alice is going to answer her three about me. We are back with Alice Spielberg and she's going to answer her questions. Question number one, you are a Disney plus person and longtime Disney fan. Who is your favorite Disney character of all time and why? Hmm. I am a huge Disney fan. It also helps that I have two toddlers and so they're really into Disney too. So Disney plus was a must for us, but my favorite Disney character I, I have to go with Belle and maybe that's just so cliche because she is a reader, mm. but, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love her. I think that, you know, she's a reader among non-readers and she doesn't care and she reads about adventures. She's not just a sappy love story reader and she is a feminist. I just always loved that song right after Gaston proposed to her and she was like, oh, I could never be his little wife. So I just, I really love her. This is from Beauty and the Beast for people who may not be up on their (laughs) Disney info. Oh yeah, that's a good one. All three of my kids went through their Disney phases. My daughter, fortunately for her, I was very sick when I was pregnant with her younger brother. And so my neighbor still had all of her old Disney princess VHS (laughs) movies. I don't know how many times we watched Beauty and the Beast and Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. And my daughter fell completely in love with the princesses. But then after her younger brother came along, he loved McQueen and Mater. We went through every iteration of every car. It's kind of funny. I I sort of miss those movies. Like we watched the Cars movie so much that it it literally broke. Like the DVD (laughs) just broke. It just said enough. 
Okay, question number two. So on your webpage, you mentioned that you were interested in fantasy that is based in folk magic, specifically Appalachian folk magic. And I am a huge fan of Appalachian literature myself. I'm originally from West Virginia. And so I'm wondering what specifically about Appalachian stories intrigues you? I think there's a lot there. I think I first started getting this idea when I read The Vine That Ate the South by J.D. Wilkes. And this was like a small press book. It came out from $2 Radio. But it was set in western Kentucky and you had the Kudzo vines. I was living in the Highlands at the time and I had one of those vines in my backyard and we were battling with it all summer. (laughs) (laughs) But I just loved the way that he kind of wove in the folklore of Kentucky but made it magical. And it was something that I had never really seen before. And then I started looking for it and I started talking to editors in New York who are from this part of the country and they were like, yeah, I want to see that too. So I'm still looking in this space. I haven't really completely found something that really has captivated me, but I did just this week have a call with an author who's working on a quirky queer Appalachian whodunit. So there's like a lake monster in southeastern Kentucky near the falls and a murder happens there and it's framed to look like the lake monster. So it just sounds amazing. But there's something about the the setting and the traditions of people. And some of it is still, I feel like you could set it even in a modern time period and have that ancient earth magic with the characters. All right. Last question. So you mentioned that you originally planned to be a vet. And you also mentioned that chemistry class is what made you change your mind. But I have to ask, what experiences did you have that made you able to identify cows (laughs) so well? So as I mentioned earlier, I was an animal science major. So we had to take biology and chemistry, but we also took animal science classes. And some of them were sitting in the classroom, you know, looking at pictures of things and learning what different breeds are and that sort of thing. But we also had a lab class where we actually went out to the farm and we had to judge the cows and based on their form, <laughs> which sounds really strange now, but um, <laughs> it's sort of like in the Miss America contest where they're mom- <laughs> No, it's like, so this happens at the state fair too. So you go to the state fair and there are judging contests and the animals go up there and usually the 4-H kids bring out their cow and the other kids judge the cow. So I had to be tested on all of those breeds. At the time, I knew like all of the different cow breeds possible. Now I just know a few and (laughs) it's just something that has stuck with me. And I love those classes. We had the most amazing professor. We also learned how to wrestle a sheep. Oh my God. Oh, wow. (laughs) So what what did the exam for that look like? I, I'm still stuck on what the bathing suit portion of the of the cow thing might look like. That's what that's what I've got going on in my head right now. Oh my he didn't goodness. have to do much. He just stood there. Yeah. <laughs> oh goodness! Hey, if somebody's looking to write a book, that might be the way to uh, Alice's heart there. 
<laughs> through cows. Well, Alice, thank you so much. It has been so much fun getting to know you and, and all about Spielberg Literary Agency. Thanks so much for being a guest. Thank you for having me. This was a really fun conversation. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. And if you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.